Section 55 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, Case Studies, Chapter 11, Part 2. Benefits of the Green Run the advisory committee attempted to assess of the national security benefits that were expected and actually resulted from the Green Run. A planning memorandum before the Green Run notes, The possibility of the detection of stack effluence is of great importance to the intelligence requirements of the country. How important the detection of stack effluence was to the security of the nation in 1949 is not something the advisory committee was in a position to judge. We did attempt to ascertain, however, the purpose of the Green Run and the extent to which this purpose was served. The Green Run report focuses primarily on ground-based monitoring of radioactive contamination in the environment, which provided a test for techniques that could be used on the ground in the Soviet Union. The report also describes efforts to track the radioactive plume by aircraft, but their significance is unclear. Aerial monitoring turned out to be the most effective method for detecting atmospheric nuclear tests, and perhaps it was expected to be equally effective for monitoring Soviet plutonium production. Plutonium production releases relatively little radioactivity into the atmosphere, however, too little to detect outside Soviet airspace, and flying inside Soviet airspace would have been risky. Alternatively, aerial radiation tracking may have been designed to test techniques for use in monitoring nuclear weapons tests. Finally, the Green Run report compares the pattern of the plume's dispersion with theoretical models, but this appears to be an attempt to estimate the pattern of contamination rather than to test the already well-established theory regarding atmospheric diffusion of gases developed in the 1930s. It is difficult to ascertain how useful the Green Run actually was. The classified histories of the Air Force's atomic intelligence activities contain no references to the Green Run. These histories jump from events that directly preceded the Green Run, the Oak Ridge and Hanford aerial monitoring tests, to later ones without any mention of the Green Run. Perhaps most telling, a 1952 AEC report entitled Technical Methods in Atomic Energy Intelligence does mention the Green Run in the text, but only in a list of occasions on which a particular type of instrument was used. In describing ways of detecting plutonium production facilities, the report relies on routine reports of environmental surveys from Hanford's routine operations. Secrecy and Public Risk the Advisory Committee accepts that there may be conditions under which national security can justify secrecy in intentional releases like the Green Run, even as we recognize that secrecy can increase the risk to the exposed population. In discussing this question, it is important to explain that when we use the term secret, we can be referring to secrecy regarding the very fact that a risk has been posed, secrecy regarding the purpose behind the risk, or secrecy regarding the means, for example, the science of technology, by which the risk was imposed. These distinctions are important 
Because even if we agree that the undertaking of an activity is required for national security reasons, it does not follow that secrecy should govern all aspects of the activity. Thus, as an obvious example, atomic bomb tests were quintessential national security activities. Information on the design of the bomb was secret, as was information on many of the specific purposes of the tests. However, in many, but not all, cases, the public was given notice that a hazardous activity was being undertaken. Similarly, in the cases of other environmental releases, it may be that national security requires secrecy for some aspects of the release, but does not necessarily preclude public disclosure sufficient to give basic notification of the existence of potential risk. The committee is not equipped to say whether this was so in the case of the Green Run. However, in the case of radiological warfare, as we will discuss later, there was contemporary argument that some public disclosure was not inconsistent with national security. If a release is conducted publicly, affected communities have an opportunity to comment and perhaps influence the conduct of the release in ways that serve their interests. Downwinders can be warned, giving them options of staying indoors with their windows closed, wearing protective clothing, altering their eating habits, or evacuating the area. If the release is conducted in secret, foreign adversaries are less likely to be alerted, but downwinders will be deprived of their options. Of course, evacuation may not be warranted, and other precautions may not be needed, or they may be of limited value. But as we have learned during the course of our work, secrecy, even where initially merited, has its long-term price. At Hanford, as we have noted, the Green Run represented only a fraction of the risks, including non-radiation as well as radiation hazard, to which local communities may have been exposed in secret. The delayed legacy of these risks, in uncertainty and distrust, as witnesses from the Hanford community told the committee, is only becoming apparent as the secret history of early Hanford operations has been made public. During World War II, officials at DuPont, the contractor for Hanford at that time, proposed a practice evacuation to prepare for a possible emergency. General Groves turned them down, saying that any practice evacuation of the Hanford camp would cause a complete breakdown in the security of the project. As noted in the introduction, at the onset of the Manhattan Project, concern for the effects of Hanford operations on the surrounding environment, including the salmon in the Columbia River, led to a secret program of research on the environmental effects of Hanford's operations. Secrecy remained the rule at Hanford after the war. In 1946, as recalled years later by an early biologist at Hanford who wrote to radiation researcher and historian Newell Stannard, Hanford researchers resorted to deception simply to collect information about possible iodine contamination in livestock by having employees pretend to be agricultural inspectors while surreptitiously monitoring iodine levels in animal thyroids. The biologist wrote, Though the environmental study group at Hanford had been sampling air, soil, water, and vegetation in a wide area surrounding the Hanford site for several years, previous to 1946, it was agreed that sampling from farm animals for uptake of fission product plant wastes would be a much more sensitive problem. At the time, 
the revelation of a regional I-131 problem would have had a tremendous public relations impact, and furthermore, the presence of other radionuclides was of possible national defense significance. He explained that he was called at home and told to report to work at the director's office in downtown Richland. There, I was introduced to two security agents of the Manhattan Engineer District, who were to be my escorts and contact men during the day. They proved to be the best straight-faced liars I had ever known. I was no longer Carl Hurd of DuPont, but through the day would be known and introduced as Dr. George Hurd of the Department of Agriculture. I was to simulate an animal husbandry specialist who had the responsibility of testing a new portable instrument based on an unproven theory that by external readings on the surface of the farm, the health and vigor of animals could be evaluated. I was advised not to be alarmed if at times during the conversations with farmers that they appeared critical or skeptical. I was to be very reserved and answer questions as briefly and vaguely as seemed acceptable. They agreed to carry a clipboard. I was to concentrate on the high readings, thyroids of course, and furnish those for recording when not being observed. That day we visited several diversified farms under irrigation from the Yakima River between Toppenshish and Benton City. Smooth talk and flattery enabled us to gain 100% cooperation. I was successful in placing the probe of the instrument over the thyroid at times when the owner's attention was focused on the next animal or some concocted distraction. In 1948, the AEC prepared a public relations pamphlet entitled Handling Radioactive Wastes in the Atomic Energy Program. The Department of Defense objected to the description of Hanford's operations, arguing that any description of the methods used to reduce contamination might be used by the Soviet Union to avoid detection of its plants. The AEC decided at its October 7, 1949 meeting to release the pamphlet which contained no specific numbers, in order to dispel and allay possible latent hysteria. With a major expansion of Hanford's operations underway in 1954, questions arose over whether to publish information about contamination of the Columbia River. Parker warned that it might be necessary to close portions of the river to public fishing, but he and others noted that this could have a substantial public relations impact. At the same time, there was concern that information on river contamination could make it possible to ascertain Hanford's plutonium output. For this combination of public relations and security reasons, Hanford did not release any quantitative information or a public warning on contamination of fish in the Columbia River until many years later. It is difficult to argue with the need for secrecy about the purposes of the Green Run. Making information on U.S. atomic intelligence methods openly available could have led the Soviet Union to develop countermeasures to these methods. The issue remains important today in responding to the potential proliferation of nuclear weapons capabilities around the world. But the results of the long delay in informing the public about the activities of which the Green Run was only a part are now evident in public anger and distrust toward the government. At the Advisory Committee's public meeting in Spokane on November 21, 1994, 
Lynn Stembridge, executive director of the Hanford Education Action League, argued that information regarding that radiation release was kept secret for almost 40 years. There was no warning. There was no informed consent. Citizens downwind were never advised of measures that could have been taken to safeguard the health of themselves or their children. Although the Green Run was not as direct as handling a patient orange juice laced with radioactivity or giving someone an injection, the Green Run was every bit as intentional, every bit as experimental, every bit as unethical and immoral as the medical experiments which have made headlines over the last year. Among the most damaging dimensions of the legacy of distrust created by the secrecy that surrounded the routine and intentional releases at Hannaford is the government's loss of credibility as a source of information about risk. Now, when the government is attempting to find out what damage these releases actually did and share that information with the people affected, these people question why they should believe what the government says. Federally funded scientists at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington, are now studying those exposed as children to all of Hannaford's iodine emissions, the many routine emissions, as well as the green run, to see whether any health effects are detectable. Whatever this study concludes, many residents are convinced that they have already seen the effects. Tom Bailey, who grew up and still lives on a farm near Hanford, spoke to the advisory committee's meeting in Spokane in November 1994. He pointed on a large map to what he called a death mile, where 100% of those families that drank the water, drank the milk, ate the food, have one common denominator that binds us together, and that is thyroid problems, handicapped children, or cancer. It is doubtful that the results of any study supported with federal funds, no matter how impeccably conducted, would be believable to people like Mr. Bailey. Assuming that the Hutchinson Cancer Research Center study is so conducted, and assuming the study finds that at least some outcomes of concern to the community are not attributable to the Hanford emissions, government secrecy will have deprived Mr. Bailey and people like him of an important source of reassurance and peace of mind. The Green Run and the far greater number of environmental releases resulting from Hanford's routine operations raises challenging questions about the balance between openness and secrecy in settings where citizens may be exposed to environmental hazards. Citizens may reasonably ask whether releases have been determined to be necessary in light of alternatives, whether actions may have been taken to minimize risk and provide for any harm that may occur, whether disclosure will be made at the earliest possible date, and whether records will be created and preserved so that citizens can account for any health and safety consequences at the time of disclosure. As we will see, these questions were posed with regard to other environmental releases, and they remain with us today. Radiological Warfare The first proposed military application of atomic energy was not nuclear weaponry, but radiological warfare, RW, the use of radioactive materials to cause radiological injury. A May 1941 report by the National Academy of Sciences listed the first option as the production of violently radioactive materials carried by airplanes to be scattered as bombs over enemy territory. 
It was not until later that year that a calculation by British physicists demonstrated the feasibility of nuclear weapons and attention quickly turned to their development. Military interest in both offensive and defensive aspects of radiological warfare continued throughout World War II. In the spring of 1943, when it was still unclear whether the atomic bomb could be built in time, radiological weapons became a possible fallback. Manhattan Project Scientific Director J. Robert Oppenheimer discussed with physicist Enrico Fermi the possibility of using fission products, particularly strontium, to poison the German food supply. Oppenheimer later wrote to Fermi that he thought it impractical unless we can poison food sufficient to kill a half a million men. This proposal for offensive use of radiological weapons appears to have been dropped because of its impracticality. At the same time, military officials developed contingency plans for responding to the possible use of radiological weapons by Germany against invading Allied troops. The peacetime experience of Operation Crossroads in 1946, particularly the contamination of the Navy flotilla from the underwater nuclear test shot labeled Baker, revived interest in radiological warfare. Some, including Berkeley's Dr. Joseph Hamilton, concluded that radiological poisons could be used as strategic weapons against cities and their food supplies. Once absorbed into the body, radioactive materials would cause slow, progressive injuries. Others proposed that RW could be a more humane form of warfare. Using radioactive material to contaminate the ground would render it temporarily uninhabitable, but it would not be necessary to kill or injure people. Although many discussions of radiological warfare took place in classified military circles, the basic notion of radiological warfare was not secret and was a subject of public speculation. But the government's program in radiological warfare remained largely secret, except in its broadest outlines. The post-war interest in radiological warfare spawned competing programs on radiological warfare both in the AEC and in various parts of the Department of Defense. To meld these into a coherent program, the AEC and DOD established a joint study panel in May 1948, chaired by the chemist W.A. Noyes from the University of Rochester, and including civilian experts and DOD and AEC officials. At its first meeting that month, the Noyes panel recommended work in three areas. One, biological research on the effects of radiation and radioactive materials to be carried out mainly at the Army Chemical Corps Toxicity Laboratory located at the University of Chicago. Two, studies on the production of radioactive materials for use in radiological warfare carried out mainly by the AEC. And three, military studies of possible RW munitions also carried out mainly by the Chemical Corps. The latter program was the focus of the Advisory Committee's attention because it involved the intentional release of radioactive materials during several dozen tests of prototype radiological weapons at the Chemical Corps' Dugway Proving Ground in the Utah Desert. The Offensive Radiological Warfare Program Field Testing Program coincided with the Korean War years. The Noise Panel issued its final report after its sixth meeting in November 1950 
and was revived briefly in 1952 to assess the status of the RW research program. The first two field tests were conducted at Oak Ridge. These involved sealed sources of radioactive material that were placed in a field in order to measure the resulting radiation levels. These measurements may have helped predict the effectiveness of radiological weapons. The sources were then returned to the laboratory and left no residual contamination in the environment. Most of the radiological warfare field tests were carried out by the Chemical Corps at the Dugway Proving Ground using radioactive tantalium produced at Oak Ridge. From 1949 to 1952, the Chemical Corps conducted 65 field tests at Dugway, intentionally releasing into the ground roughly 13,000 curies of tantalium in the form of dust, small particles, and pellets. These were prototype tests releasing much smaller quantities of radioactive material than the millions of curies per square mile that an operational radiological weapon would need to render territory temporarily uninhabitable. Furthermore, the field test programs used tantalium primarily because it could be produced at existing facilities. An operational radiological warfare program required materials that could be produced in greater quantities than tantalium but this would have meant constructing special production facilities. In May 1949, the Chemical Corps established a panel of outside experts to provide advice on the safety of its field testing program. Chaired by Dr. Joseph Hamilton, a strong advocate of the RW research program, the panel was chartered to consider radiological hazards to the civilian population, including hazards to the water supply, food, crops, animal population, etc. Occupational safety was left to the Chemical Corps. Under Hamilton's leadership, this panel raised a number of safety concerns, but in the end, appears to have been satisfied with the safety of the test program. Several months before the first panel meeting, Hamilton himself had objected to the use of the relatively long-lived isotope tantalium-182, half-life 117 days, as the radiological warfare agent in these field tests. He proposed using gold-198 instead, half-life 2.7 days, to eliminate any lingering radiation hazard to the general population. At its first meeting on August 2, 1949, the RW Test Safety Panel provisionally accepted the proposed testing program of the Chemical Corps, subject to a radiological safety review of the results of the first two tests. Hamilton's potential opposition clearly was of consequence, and his agreement to proceed was cause for relief. Other members of the test safety panel, including Carl Morgan, head of health physics at Oak Ridge, raised concerns about the possible hazard posed by radioactive dust at an arid site like Dugway, both on and off-site. Morgan proposed the use of airborne monitoring equipment developed at Oak Ridge in tests that preceded the Green Run. The use of such aircraft and other monitoring equipment evolved and expanded as the Dugway field tests continued over the next few years. Panel members approved the continuation of the program based in part on the results of these radiological surveys, which showed that contamination of the area was limited in size. In 1952, the Chemical Corps proposed a significant expansion of the radiological warfare program with a large test of 100,000 curies planned for 1953, and still larger tests proposed for later. 
The test safety panel once again raised concerns over the radioactive dust hazard. Hamilton noted that there were several hot spots, areas of unusually high radiation, at Dugway, and that trucks at one of the target areas were kicking up significant quantities of radioactive dust. A chemical core study in early 1953 concluded that the hazard was relatively slight. Hamilton favored going ahead with the 1953 tests and was greatly disappointed when they were canceled, and with them, the entire radiological warfare test program. The reasons for this cancellation are not entirely clear, but two factors are evident. The next phase of the program would have required the construction of expensive new production facilities, which collided with military budget cuts at the end of the Korean War. Furthermore, by 1953, only the Chemical Corps maintained a strong interest in the radiological warfare program, making it vulnerable to questions about whether it satisfied any unique military need. The radiological warfare program did not end completely, but its focus narrowed to defensive measures, including shielding and decontamination, with atmospheric nuclear tests providing the main opportunity for study. The Radiological Warfare Test Safety Panel was an early example of the use of an expert panel to evaluate possible risks of planned government activities. Ideally, such a panel should not be chaired by a proponent of the program in question, although those with such knowledge of and interest in the program are of obvious value to a safety effort. Hamilton's evident enthusiasm for radiological warfare research raises questions about his impartiality as head of the panel, but the panel as a whole appears to have dealt with serious public health issues in a responsible manner. End of section 55